Good morning again. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James, the book of James. And now, as we continue in the book of James, as I say, mentioned last week, James is a a great book in that he he's pretty straight a pretty straight shooter in the sense that he is going to tell you what he thinks. He's going to challenge you, and he wants your faith that you say you have to be demonstrated in your actions. Anybody can say they are a Christian. In fact, many do. But he wants you to prove it, to live your life in a way that honors the Lord, that demonstrates the inward change that's made in your heart. And now, James, this first chapter of James, verses 2 through verse 15, James basically lays out response to trials. Okay. Now, we're going to break this up in a few different sermons as we look at this rich section. But basically, verses 2 through verse 15, he talks about trials. So keep that in mind as we go through this section. Now, what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at how to respond when life is hard. Right? Every one of us would admit that life can be hard at times. So often, even as new Christians, or I hear Christians say, that they make the assumption that when they come to Jesus Christ, life's going to be easy. And when they face hardships, they're surprised. But Christian life doesn't mean that it's going to be devoid of trouble, devoid of hard times in your life. There's poverty, there's grief, there's fear, loneliness, sickness. Disappointment, just to name a few. There's going to be tough people as well as they they sin against you indirectly and directly. In short, you will face trials in this life. Those that have lived a while as a Christian can testify to this fact. Now, just to clarify, when James speaks of trials, and as we go through this section about trials... He's not talking about the consequences of unwise decisions that you make or sinful decisions and the consequences that come. After all, God has put into effect the general principle as stated in Galatians 6-7, as a person sows, shall he will reap. There are consequences for poor decisions in your life. And so not everything that you face, you can say, well, this is a God-given trial. This may be just the consequences of your own, uh, own unwise decisions. If you're under so much financial stress, the first thing you need to say is, did I put myself in this stress? But James is talking about external trials that, that we walk into and that are ordained by God that are not necessarily or not particularly based off of our choices that we make. Some of the day-to-day troubles that you face, plus the added trouble that you faced for being a follower of Jesus Christ. And so I was thinking about this, I was thinking about hurricanes this week, and as I was thinking about the, the cyclone that hit 
northern, northern Australia, and I was looking at the pictures, and I was talking about it with a, with a fellow pastor, and, and he was saying that he has, he has family that lives up there, and the eye of the hurricane went over their home, and we were just talking about that, because where I'm from in North Carolina is we get, we've, got, we've got many, many hurricanes, the, the Atlantic storms run clockwise, and they, they just seem to want to smash right into North Carolina very often. So I've been through many of those cyclones, many of those hurricanes in my life. And it's interesting because as I was thinking about these hurricanes, it reminded me, especially when I saw the pictures, of the, of the howling wind, the bending the trees over in nonstop gusts. Reminded me of the rain and the rain coming down so hard that it's stinging your face if you were to stand outside. Reminded me of the debris flying around because of the wind. I remember the flooding and the, the ponds and the lakes and the ditches and even flooding onto the roads because there's nowhere for that amount of water to go quickly. But I remember also the eye of the storm. And I remember walking out and all of a sudden it goes exactly calm. And you look up and you go outside and it's a perfectly clear day. You can see the clouds, the birds start just tweeting and singing and you think the storm's over, but you realize it's only halfway done. And then the backside of the storm hits and the backside is more ferocious than the front side. And the the wind changes the opposite direction. The trees that have been constantly pressured and bent fall over. The ground is already saturated. And as I thought about this, I was thinking about the storms of life and how we go through these storms at time and the wind blows and it howls and there's rain and there's trouble in there and then we get a respite. And then it seems like the trials renew and they're even greater intensity than they were before. Well, James has an answer to trials and he has an answer of how we as Christians can respond when life gets hard. And we're going to look at James' instructions today in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And we're going to look at three instructions. James says that you must have a joyful attitude in trials. You must remember the refining nature of trials. And then you should desire the outcome of trials. And so he gives out these three instructions. You must have a joyful attitude in trials. You must remember the refining nature of trials. And you should desire the outcome of trials. So let's look down at James chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, and then we'll dig in. Verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James, first of all, lays out a command. And he says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. He says, consider. The word consider has to do with regard. It's a mental evaluation that you make as a result of deliberation. It's You're thinking this through. The the trial comes and you are considering it. You're regarding it. It's not an emotional response to your trials. You will be sad and you will at times be depressed and you will feel different emotions. But what he's talking about is a careful, thoughtful process that accepts this trial as from the Lord and as a cause for joy. Because we often think about joy as happiness. 
But happiness is circumstantial. You think about the early martyrs, and if you read their accounts, Fox's Book of Martyrs is a great place to start. You can read about these, these early church martyrs and the joy that they experienced as they were led to their deaths. That's not a happy circumstance. But yet they had the joy. A joy comes through the Holy Spirit. It comes from a closeness with the Lord. And so James is saying, look, you need to consider, you need to thoughtfully approach these trials and any hard circumstances that you face with an attitude of joy, an attitude of trusting God, a deep-seated confidence that God is good and that He knows what's best for you. That's hard. Because our natural response to trials is what? We want to escape them as quick as possible. We don't, our natural response is we don't want to consider the trial a joy. We want to consider the end of the trial a joy. But James says, look, and he says, not only consider it joy, but consider it all joy, the, the highest form of joy, pure joy. When we think about trials, we, we think about the, the, the situation that we face, and we're to approach that with an attitude, the right attitude, the right response to that trial, and that's an attitude of joy. Right? doesn't mean the trial's not going to be hard. doesn't mean that it's not going to be tough doesn't mean they're not going to face sorrow during that trial or pain or heartache. But it means that I'm going to trust the Lord through this circumstance, knowing that He is here with me. James says later on, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. That's the joyful aspect of the trial, is that we get God in the trial. He's not left us alone. For many of you, if you've read my pastor's notes this week, I had the, the wonderful opportunity to look at Psalm 34 and the fear that David felt, the despair. But yet, he turned to the Lord and God, he says God removed his fear. And his fear became joy because he realized and he thought about the goodness of God. 1 Peter 4 is an interesting, interesting passage. 1 Peter 4 Verse 12, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be surprised, brethren, if you go through trials, if you face hardship in this life. We all face a certain amount of hardship because we live in a fallen world. Romans 8, creation groans. Right? For the revelation of Jesus Christ. Creation lives in corruption. We live in a corrupt world. Nature doesn't, isn't performing, isn't working as God intended. It's influenced by sin and evil. The world has fallen. People will sin against you and you will sin against them. You see, this is a unique fullness of joy that God gives His children when they endure trials. So, Having an attitude, like I said, doesn't mean we won't feel emotions. But it is a deep-seated confidence in God's character and a trust in Him. You have to think about your experiences that they are grounds and they are aspects for your good given by God, that He is sovereign. Because you think about natural response. A natural response is what? Grumbling, complaining, questioning God, anger. An intense desire to escape the trial. 
That's the natural response. When you're enduring a trial and, and someone says, how do you do this in joy? It's an opportunity to say, what? To demonstrate your faith and tell others about your faith and say, I trust the Lord because He is good and He has my best good at heart. So James' instruction here, first of all, is that, that these believers should trust God and consider their trials joy. doesn't mean every trial is going to be a wonderful, happy experience, right? It goes back to not an emotion. But we know that the trials are for our good. And as we get in a little bit more into this passage, we'll see the outcome of the trial and we'll rejoice in that. But this is a command from James. James doesn't leave you any wiggle room. He says, be joyful in your trials. And he actually says later on, and we'll get into this next time, next week, but he says, look, if you, if you have trouble with this, and you have trouble with some of these, these general principles, some of this theological, uh, theological information, and, you're, and you're, you need to understand more about God because our trust comes back to our knowledge of God, right? How we respond in our circumstances always is dependent upon our view of God and who He is. And But James says in verse 5, he says, if you lack wisdom... Like you're, you're struggling to understand while trials come and who God is. And if you lack wisdom, then what do you need to do? You need to pray for wisdom. And God gives generously. So you've got to have a joyful attitude. You consider it all joy. But he also says when you encounter various trials. So, but we've talked about trials and we've talked about having that attitude of joy. But what's a trial? The word for trial is an interesting word. And it'd be good for you to, to remember this word. In the Greek, it is parasmos, right? Parasmos. The word for trial is a two-sided coin. On one side, it means trial, and one side, it means temptation. It all goes back to the intent of the person that has you go through that. Obviously, God has no ill intent his desire is that you succeed, that your faith would grow. So that's the purpose of a trial. That's the goal of God in a trial. Satan, on the other hand, is a temptation because he desires your downfall. James make, elaborates on this later on in chapter 1. He says, let no one say that when, that when he is parasmos, tempted in a trial that I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt you, in other words, tempt you to fail, tempt you to do evil. He does not tempt anyone. But you're tempted, parasmos, when you're carried away and enticed by your own desires. So it can be used in a good or bad sense. If used in the good sense, it's to demonstrate the quality or strength of an object. Used in a bad sense, it's so that the object will fail under stress. But it's external pressure, and the intention is the key. You see, these eternal, external traits or these external trials, excuse me, can become a temptation because of your inner response. Right? We have a temptation to sin. In poverty, what if, if you don't trust God and you're not approaching that trial of poverty in in, in response, like James says, in joy, then you'll be tempted to what? You may be tempted to steal. You may be tempted to gamble. You may be tempted to what? Blame God and grumble and complain. But those, those, those sins come from 
the indwelling flesh. Right? God, isn't, God doesn't want you to sin. He wants you to bear up into those trials with joy. He wants you to trust in Him. You think about Job. and Job's kind of the famous passage or famous book. Most of you know Job, or at least have read parts of Job. And in Job, God comes down, or sorry, Satan comes up to God, and he's presenting himself before the Lord, and the Lord says, hey, how about my servant Job? And Satan says, well, the only reason he worships you is because you've blessed him. And God says, verse 12 of Job chapter 1, Behold, he is in your hand, only do not put forth your hand on him. And Satan departed. And so basically, Satan says, look, he only, he only loves you. He only obeys you because you've blessed him. God looks at Satan and says, okay, you can do anything you want. You just can't touch him. And then the very next chapter, one thing after another happens to Job. Supernatural events. His children die. His flocks are, are, are stolen. Right? His family is killed. One thing after another. All these things happen to Job. But he trusts in the Lord. Okay? Job is, a, is an example and one thing, as I was thinking through this particular passage, I was thinking about trials, I thought about 1 Corinthians 10.13. Most of you know this, and I'll read it for you, and just to remind you, 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has struck you that is not common to man. And God is faithful, and He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, He will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Okay? So there's different types of trials. James says, look, my brother, when you encounter, when you face, when you fall into various trials, they're multifaceted. The word various is multifaceted. It's like a diamond. right? I'm not going to stand up here and list all the different trials that you possibly could face in your life or that you have faced in your life. But, but James's point is he's not just talking about persecution. He's talking about daily hardships. There's many different types of trials. That's God is working in your life to accomplish many different purposes. He knows what's in your heart. And He's working in your hearts to test you, to prove you, to refine you, as we're going to see in a minute. So the difficulties you face, they're, they're the general difficulties that we all face, that all human men and women face. And then there's the added pressures that come because you're a Christian. They're multifaceted. They're, they're diversities. Poverty, injustice, sickness, loneliness, grief, disappointment, persecution, old age, young age, even riches, James says, is a trial. 1 Peter 1.6, Peter says, you, and he's talking to those believers, you have been distressed by various trials, various multifaceted trials. And to encounter those, the word for encounter, I love this, it seems to, to fall into. There's no way of escape. The word is used in Luke 10 saying that, that he, the, the particular person in the parable fell among robbers. There's no escape. Luke uses it in Acts and says that the ship that they were on with the Apostle Paul encountered a reef. It, it fell among a reef. There was no escape. Because trials come suddenly. They shouldn't be surprising, but trials can come suddenly and there's no escape. I know what you're asking. I know what you're thinking. Because I know how you think. And you're saying, all right, pastor, but wait a minute. Didn't you just quote 1 Corinthians 10.13? Didn't, didn't Paul say that we have a way of escape? 
right? You're going, I know, he's, it doesn't make sense. They're contradictory. How can you encounter a trial and you fall into it and not escape it when Paul says there's a way of escape? One thing, as you, as you look into God's Word, and you realize that sometimes words have a deeper meaning. Okay, when I looked at 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the, the word for escape is the term ekbasis. And it means out from or to move forward. So it's used in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 in a figurative sense. And unfortunately, so many Christians, we look at this passage and we take that and we say, that's a literal thing that God's going to do is that in every trial, He's literally going to provide a way of escape. We forget the next part of that verse says that so that you will be able to endure it. How can you endure a trial and be escaped from it at the same time? I think personally that's a poor English translation of that word. Even though most English commentators, they mean it in a figurative sense, but people don't read it that way. The word literally means to move forward or out from something to a new destination. What, James, what Paul is talking about is your, you, there's an outcome to your trial. The way of escape is the, is the end result of that trial. What but Paul is talking about is he's promising you an end. That's how you can endure trials, because you know there's going to be an end. Imagine if you didn't think there was going to be an end to the trial, right? That would be hopeless. Now, in God's sovereignty, we don't know how long trials are going to last. For each one of us, those trials are, are His determination. I think one thing that we keep, sometimes we keep going through the same trial is that we fail to learn the lessons that He wants us to learn. Does that make sense? You see the trials we encounter, we face, and when Paul says there's no way of escape, he's talking about there's going to be an end to that trial. And the, the great part of that word is not only there's going to be an end, but the, the end result is better than what it was, what you were when you started. So it's not an escape as in, I'm going to jump out of this trial and I'm going to run in the opposite direction and I'm done. And even Paul says, just like James, is that the purpose of those trials is that you'll be able to endure it. You'll be able to endure that trial because you know it will end. And you know the outcome, your outcome, is much better than when you first started. So James says, first of all, you must have a joyful attitude in trials. It's a, it's a willful decision regardless of how you feel, to trust in the Lord, be confident in Him, draw close to Him. And what is joy? Joy is produced by the Holy Spirit working in your life. Right? That's how all of our brethren, the martyrs, were able to go to their death with joy because they drew close to God, He drew close to them, and they approached their martyrdom with joy regardless of their circumstances. So James says you must have a joyful attitude in verse 2. But he also says, look down in verse 3. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So James's challenge is, he says, you must remember the refining nature of trials. The word there for testing, it's a different word than, than the word for trials in parasmos. It's dikamoine, and it means to prove the quality or worth or something. Think of it like this. Trials are the crucible that show who you really are. 
right? If you were always had, you know, celebrate good times, come on and celebrate good times, come on if we sing the song, right? Are you, are you ever really challenged? Is your faith ever really refined? Are you really, ever really have to depend upon God? One thing that James does, and, and I like this, he says, knowing that the testing of your faith, because he assumes they're believers. And when you think about the parable of the soils, one thing that trials do, testing does, in, 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 return, uh, sorry, in, in view of the parable of the soils in Luke 8, is that it shows whose they really are, whose you really are. Because anybody can claim to be a Christian, but you want to really purify the church, you want to really see who's going to be faithful, you add a little bit of pressure. Right? You add a little bit of pressure, and guess who falls away? Parable of the Soils says everybody falls away. Do you realize in the Parable of the Soils, only 25% of those who heard the Word of God believe? Right? 25%. One-fourth. Even the ones that believe for a little while, it says that trials, parasmas, come and they fall away. And there's those that hear the Word and they get enticed by the things of the world, like Demas we talked about in end of Colossians. They love the world and they leave the body, they leave the brethren, and they go off and they, they demonstrate their true character. And I've seen this happen, and it's so sad because I've had family members, people I, I think that are, that are faithful believers, and, and they're going strong, it looks like, for years, and all of a sudden, they just leave everything, and they go after their own lusts. You know, 1 John 2, 9 says, they went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us... They would have remained with us, but they went out from us so that it would be demonstrated that they are all not of us. You know, one of the things that I really enjoyed when I visited Melbourne a few years ago, one of my good friends is a pastor there. We, he took me up to Sovereign Hill. Sovereign Hill, they, they've rebuilt the, the, the town of Sovereign Hill, so it, it looks like it did back in the 1800s. And it's interesting, they have candle making, and they have all these things, and they actually still are pulling gold out of that hill to the tune of $4 million a year. That mine's been working since the earliest times of, uh, of Australia. And it was interesting because they, they took us to this room, and they were showing us how they melt down gold, and how they refine gold, and, and the process. And now they use a, a, a primarily, two things they use today is heat, and they use some chemicals, and they mix the two, and you can get the refined gold. But if you go back to the early days, right, whether it's the time of James himself, or it's the times even of the early days of Australia, they didn't really use the chemicals. They used, primarily used heat. And heat purifies, right? And as it, as it heats the, the base metal, the impurities rise to the surface, and, and you, you scrape off the impurities, and it's a process of, of refining. Well, 1 Peter 1 says that, that we are tested by fire. We refined. Even Job says in Job 23, he says, But he knows the way, Job's talking about God, he knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. So an aspect of trials that you have to remember is that it's a refining process. You see, God brings trials in your life in various forms, but He does it to refine you. That's that testing that, that He wants to show you what's in your heart. 
those idols, your, your love for the world, your fear of man, your lack of love for God, your lack of love for His people, your selfishness. He turns up the heat so that you will turn to Him. I've got a great quote I read in one of the commentaries I was studying this week, and it said that affliction lets down a blazing torch into the depths of one's own nature. You're able to see things which you little expected to see. You find your faith weak where you thought it strong, and you find your views on God dim where you thought them clear. You see, trials are refining for us. They produce what? Look at verse 3. The testing of your faith produces endurance. So the word there produces is, is to work down. It's emphatic. He's saying, look, that the, the, the trials, the testing will continue to work in your life until they've completed their task and that successful conclusion is endurance. Sometimes it's translated patience, but patience we often think about as a temporary thing. But endurance, in fact, I even like the word steadfastness. For those of you who have been in tough trials and you've come through trusting in the Lord, you have grown in your endurance. You're better able to continue to endure in the faith. Right? Endurance begets more endurance. Do you think those believers who went to their deaths in the Roman Colosseum, all of a sudden woke up one day with the endurance to be able to endure that kind of trial? God had worked in their life, producing endurance and steadfastness so that when it came down to the time that they were to be martyred, not only was He giving them strength in the Holy Spirit, but they had been, the endurance in their life had been built up to that point. So there's a steadfastness. That, that, that testing in your life will affect your core being. Right? It's not just about outside pressure. But I love the word for endurance. It means to abide under. It's a picture of, of being under a heavy load and being weighted down, but, but resolutely staying there, not trying to get out from under that. It's the frame of mind that we are going to be faithful, trusting in the Lord even in the midst of hard circumstances. I want a commentator called it staying power. And to be able to stay and, and bear that. I can think of hard times in my own life. I'm sure you can think of hard times in your own life. Financial difficulty, death of parent, sick children at times, right? Friends walking away from the faith. Right? The hard times in your life. But one thing to remember, it's not passivity. The natural response is to either try to get rid of the trial or grumble against the trial or kind of, kind of be that like Eeyore, oh, woe is me, I'm in a trial, right? It's not that, it's a, it's a trusting the Lord, right, with that joyful attitude, knowing that He is working in your life to produce endurance. I remember in a, in a, in a Bible study one time at previous church and we had a young lady, she was in her, in her late teens, early 20s, and um, she didn't know any better, but, you know, we group, group prayer, and she, she starts praying for patience. And, uh, and those of you that are older and wiser and understand from this passage in Romans that patience comes from 
trials and testing. And so, you know, we kind of pulled her aside later and said, you know, dear sister, you, you don't understand what, you're, what you've been praying for. Now, praise God, she had a, an honest and open heart, and that she really did want patience. But God doesn't just magically, boom, you're patient, right? Oh, there's patience. There you go. Have some more patience, right? Because think about it. If He just automatically gave you patience, one, would you appreciate it? And two, what would be the process that got you to that point, right? What would be the benefit of that patience if you, if you didn't have to endure anything? You didn't have to understand what patience actually means, so that not only you can be patient with people, but you understand that they have to be patient with you. It works both ways. James actually says, you draw near to God and He draws near to you. Think about one of my, one of my favorite movies involved a, uh, involves a great sailing ship. And there's a great movie, I'm not going to tell you the name of it because I don't like to promote movies, but it's a great sailing ship and the ship's going in the midst of a storm and the waves are crashing and, and they're sailing around the, the, the southern seas south of uh, South America and, 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 the, and there's icy water splashing on the deck and, and the sails are blowing and the, the waves are massive and people are just hanging on for dear life. Right? Men, men are tying themselves to ropes because they don't want to be blown overboard. And the, the camera zooms in to this particular man, and he's, and he's an older sailor, and he's holding on for dear life. And, and on his knuckles, on his fingers, he has, he has letters. And when he, when he claps his hands and he gets them together, it says, stand fast. That's, that's us in the midst of the storm of life. Steadfast, with endurance, hanging on and clinging on to the Lord in the midst of trials in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain. Now, if you've never faced tremendous pain and suffering and never been through a trial in your life, you will. I heard many of my professors when I was in Bible college and seminary, they used to say for themselves, it seemed like life is like a, like a waves in the sea. Right? You go through trials and you get, get through the top and there's none and then you drop down into the darkness and then you, you come back up. Sometimes there's flat, calm seas, and then sometimes it bellows and blows. But when times are tough, James says, God is testing your faith. He's doing it to purify you, refine you, so that steadfastness or endurance is produced in greater measure. The endurance is produced by the Holy Spirit in your life as you obey God and you draw near to Him. So brethren, just, just know that you aren't alone. Know that we all face trials in this life. What a great aspect of trials, or a great aspect, excuse me, of the, the community of believers that we're all facing trials together of different types. That's body life. But also know that you're not alone in that, that, that God has a plan even if you don't fully understand it in the moment. Right? We often think of what God has done, but what do we do? We have to what? We have to look back at His faithfulness in our lives. Right? We don't know what He's going to do in the future, and often we can't fully understand what He's doing in the present, but God is faithful, and we see that faithfulness in the past. Right? Not only does Scripture say God is faithful, 1 Corinthians 1.9, but it, we also know He's faithful and He's good because we've experienced the goodness. As King David says in Psalm 34, 
taste and see that the Lord is good. If you taste Him, you trust Him, devote yourself to Him, you will see that God is good. That's refining nature of trials. So, James has challenged us so far. He says, look, you must have a joyful attitude in trials. And then he says, you must remember the refining nature of trials, but, but then there's an outcome. Because we often think of endurance, steadfastness as the outcome, but that's not the outcome. Now, trials, the refining nature of trials produce perseverance. They, they produce steadfastness. But there's an outcome that God is driving for. He's driving the wind of the storms, driving yourselves towards a goal. Down in verse 4, And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he says, let endurance have its perfect result. So when you look at this, he says, let. Honestly, the word let there is is kind of of weak, right? It's It's actually a present imperative, which Jory will be glad to go in greater detail later as he's studying Greek. But present imperative is a command. It should be... He's basically saying, look, endurance should have its perfect result. Or you should desire that endurance have its perfect result. That's why I titled this this particular point, you should desire the outcome because it's a command. It's not just, oh, I'm going to let it happen. You should desire it so that you can keep it happening. That you would not hinder the steadfastness, the endurance that God is trying to produce in your life. So it's a command to be on guard, to not allow the results that God is trucking in your life, that God is doing, to be interrupted by your, what, unfaithfulness, your disobedience, your grumbling, your complaining. We must respond to God's grace with obedience. And he says again, he says, let that endurance, the same word, right, that, that endurance that, to abide under, that steadfastness. And he says, look, this is the immediate result of, of your testing, it's not natural that God has produced this endurance, but he said, let endurance have its, its perfect work. The, perfect, the work here is one of the first of 15 appearances in the book of James, and it means manifestation or, or practical proof. So let endurance have its practical work. In other words, your faith in Christ, you say you do, all right, in the trial, well, God is producing endurance. Well, let, let endurance be proven in your life practically. Because remember, James is all about practical living. People say, oh, the Bible's not practical. They just haven't read it. James is all about practical living. And he said, let it have its perfect. Perfect is a finished work, a complete work. Right? When you think about, when you think about process for silver, silver differs a little bit to gold. With silver and refining silver, you realize with silver you have to refine it? They refine it seven times. They refine it over and over and over and over and over and over again until it's fully purified, it's fully refined. See, God is working in your life. And those trials keep coming. He's pretty, he keeps producing endurance and steadfastness in your life. And He's doing it for your own good. But the perfect work is what He's doing. He wants us to trust you. I'm oh, sorry, trust Him, knowing that he has your best interest at heart. And that outcome, the outcome of endurance, is not tum- determined by the number of trials, but our response to those trials. Like I said before, I believe that we keep going through the same trials over and over because 
we fail to heed the lessons. It's like that silversmith. We're the silver, and he has to keep dunking us in the, in the heat. Sanctification is a process that takes time and won't be completed until Jesus returns. So you're saying, all right, well, what's the outcome? Pastor, you've been building this up. What's the outcome? Let's look down at verse 4. He says, And let endurance have its perfect result, perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Right? He draws it back from an abstract principle, and he says, so that you individually may be what? Perfect and complete. The word perfect there has to do with uh, completeness, but it really could be translated maturity. He's talking about Christian maturity. He uses two words to describe the same thing. He says, let that work be perfect. That's the goal. He's talking about your ethical behavior, your Christ-likeness. The word complete means wholeness, soundness. It means literally no part missing in your life. So that all the character traits of Christ should be characteristic of a mature believer. They're produced by God in your life as you submit to Christ's teachings. It literally means a rounding out of your life as more and more of your character is like Jesus Christ. It's a wholeness, to go back to using James's words again, wholeness of life. He wants you to be a mature Christian. And he, and he actually uses it in the, ne- the positive sense. And the, in the negative sense, he says, lacking in nothing. Literally no part of your life will be unaffected if you submit to God's working as refining in your life. So he's working in your life. You're going through hard times. You're going through trials. He wants you to keep the attitude of joy, right? Obediently trusting in him. Knowing he's, what, refining you. He's testing you. He's producing endurance. He's producing steadfastness. But he's producing that steadfastness with the goal towards Christian maturity. The goal towards Christ-likeness. That's the goal. That's what God is looking for, you to be like Jesus Christ, and He has to work in your life to achieve that. Okay? And it takes time, and it takes faithful obedience on our part, responding to His grace. We think of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Sorry, I forgot one. We think about that, and we often think of it as it's a tree, and we're going to go and pick the fruit. Like, Lord, today I think you're going to work on self-control when we pick the fruit. Or today you're going to work on patience, pick the fruit. But fruit of the Spirit is a singular word. It's one fruit. There's only one fruit. Imagine one orange, and you slice it, and it you know, opens up, and there's many different pieces. And each one of those pieces... It's a different fruit, a different part of that same fruit. So God is working in your life, and He's not that today I'm going to work on patience on Bill, right? Self-control on Ryan. No, no. He is working with all those aspects of Christ-like character in your life at the same time. Right? So don't make that excuse. I've heard people say, well, God hasn't worked on me yet on patience. No, you're just not submitting to God in that area in your life. Right? So think about the fruit of the Spirit. Romans 8.28 said, God works all things for your good. We we love that passage. But 8.29 says that the goal is conformity to the image of Christ. So what's the ultimate good? You looking like Jesus Christ. That's maturity. Brethren, as as you develop that endurance and that steadfastness, it reminds me of, Working out muscles. You ever think about working out muscles? 
I used to go to the gym a lot. You know, you can't tell now, but I used to go to the gym a lot. I love, I love working out. Right? I love the, the challenge, and I, I love the, the outcome. You know, I'm a guy. We're goal-oriented, right? We love that. What do you think about muscles? Work your biceps. What do you do when you, when you add weights? You know, you do light weights, rep, many reps, and you build strength. But then you add heavy weights, and what do heavy weights do? They tear the muscles. Microscopic tears. And then as your body heals, what happens? The muscle grows in its size. So when trials come into your life, God is causing those tears in your life and He's building that endurance. He's working it. And He he builds that steadfastness so that you can endure even more trials and that you can remain steadfast with joy and that you would look like Jesus Christ. That's His goal. Maturity. So how do you respond when life is hard? James says you must have an attitude of joy. Remind you, it's not an emotion. It's spirit-empowered resolution to trust and delight in your good God no matter what the circumstances. How else do you respond? James says you must remember the refining nature of trials. Right? He says God tests the quality of your faith and helps remove the dross of unbelief from your heart. And finally, James says, you should desire the outcome. The goal of trials is, is not endurance. Endurance or steadfastness is produced through the refining process, but the ultimate goal is that you would be a mature Christian and that you would be well-rounded, lacking in no aspects of Christ-like character, that you would be like Jesus Christ. Right? Hopefully this is helpful for you guys today. If you're, if you're not here, or sorry, if you're here and you're, you're not a Christian, life's a hopeless situation. Trials in life is hard. You have, you have no one to turn to. You have no hope in this world. Submit to Jesus Christ. Turn to Him. Believe in Him that He paid the penalty for your sin. Trust in Him. Confess with your mouth. Submit to His Lordship. Obey Him. Repent. Jesus gives us a new heart, a new life, a new goal, right? a new purpose. And He's going to work in your life and He's going to keep working in your life until the day that you die and go back to heaven or go to heaven or that He comes back and we are like Him. He who began a good work in you will see it to completion. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You. Thank You have been challenged today. Lord, every one of us in this room have been through hard times, and we know we will go through hard times. We know that trials are, are various. They're multifaceted. And, but Lord, we also know that You are good, and You have our best interest at heart. Father, help us to trust You with joy. Help us to remember that trials are to refine us, to produce a steadfastness and endurance. Lord, knowing that you work all things for your glory and our good. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.